Matthew chapter 13, you'll find it on page 980. We'll look at those uh, three sections which Ruth read for us a moment ago. I just want to thank our musicians and singers uh, for leading us this morning uh, and those who, who aren't on this morning but who lead other weeks. It's something we don't do very often but uh, it's just a joy for the rest of us, I think, to be led in worship. So thank you for your hard work and service here. I wonder what you've made of this stuff that we've been looking at the last few weeks in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Well, Matthew 11 to 13, we've been looking at really for for a few months now. I'm going to make an assumption that actually our congregation isn't at all different to the crowd Jesus preached to uh, when he preached in in Galilee 2,000 years ago. I'm going to imagine that the same responses to the Word of God are present here among us Sunday by Sunday as were were present 2,000 years ago when Jesus preached on the hills and in the towns of Galilee. I'm going to imagine that there are some people here who have hard hearts. doesn't matter how good the preaching is. doesn't matter how often they hear it. The Word of God has about as much impact as a seed falling on a concrete slab. Nothing. Nothing happens, ever. Jesus talked about that. And I'm going to assume this morning that that's a possibility at least. That there are people here who are hardened to the Word of God. I'm going to assume as well that that some people are are going to be shallow in their response here. There are going to be people here who are going to hear things and they're, they're going to like it. But they're going to forget about it almost like that. Before Sunday lunch or before Monday morning, anything that God showed them in his word is gone. It's like that seed that fell on shallow ground. It sprang up but then then went down again. I'm going to assume that other people are distracted from what God gives them and the ways in which he challenges them. They... They hear God's word. They think, yeah, that's brilliant. I I want to respond to that. That's the way I want to live. But over time, other stuff in life just takes over and crowds it all out. But I'm going to assume as well, as Jesus did, that there are some people here who are drinking this in. who are paying attention to every word that they read, everything that Jesus says, who are good soil, who are allowing this stuff to take root in their lives. What they see in God's word is changing the way they see the world. It's changing them as people. Slowly but surely, they're becoming entirely new people. Jesus talks about them being like a a seed that's sown and and it produces 30 times a crop or or 60 times or 100 times. These, These are wonderful, vibrant, living people in the kingdom of God. 
I know I'm safe to assume that because I talk to some of you. And I see it being born out in your lives. Folks, all of these responses are here this morning. I'm just going to ask you again before we come now to look at God's word to to position yourself and see where you are in Jesus' scheme of things. This morning we're coming to an end of a series that's been running for over two months now, just a chunk of Matthew's gospel. And we've been learning a lot here, a lot of different things about what it is to follow Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to deal with four very short parables. And we're going to deal with them in pairs because that's the way Matthew presents them to us. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all your seeds, when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. The mustard seed was the smallest seed in in the world of Jesus' day that you could probably still see with your naked eye. So if you wanted to talk about something being as small as as could possibly be, you'd compare it with a mustard seed. And that's why Jesus chooses the mustard seed. In contrast with a tiny seed, a mustard plant could grow up to about 12 feet tall. So Jesus is making a point that despite small and humble beginnings, the kingdom of God will grow, and will become something much, much bigger. In verse 33, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Again, Jesus is is very everyday in his teaching, isn't he? He talks about something as every day as a kitchen ingredient, a garden plant and a kitchen ingredient. But he says that this small amount of yeast, if you think of of the bread-making process, I better be careful. I'm going to sound like I I know what I'm talking about here. I have no idea. But I gather that you use a lot less yeast than you use flour. Would that be right? Yeah? Okay. So you've... You've got your ingredients lying on the workbench. There's a heap of flour and there's a small amount of yeast. And yet the impact of this small amount of yeast is huge. It it totally changes the whole of this baking process. Uh, The small amount of mixture that goes into the oven rises and expands. And Jesus is making a point here that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Quietly and slowly... This small thing pervades what is around it and transforms it. I think that's a a wonderful metaphor for the the kingdom of God. Slowly but surely. And I think the work of yeast is slow. And it's quiet. You know, it's not a great entertainment to sit at the oven glass and watch while uh, the, the bread bakes. It, it does grow, but it's slow. It's not a dramatic sort of a thing. It's a, it's a thing that needs patience to, to see the, the yeast work its way out. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like that. 
when disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to, to get involved in their society, when they're willing to, to be mixed in the mix, if you like, then slowly but surely they, they change the whole thing. Both of these parables here, I think, speak of something which appears initially small and insignificant and of no consequence, but which in time produces a totally different effect. Small seeds do grow into big trees. Small amounts of yeast uh, do uh, produce big batches of bread. So despite appearing small, this kingdom of God is going to grow. I think Jesus was probably talking very specifically to those disciples at that point in time. He was probably making the point, listen, there's, there's 12 of us nowadays. Or, or maybe there were already 60, including other followers. But he's making the point, from these small beginnings, expect the kingdom to grow. And of course, Jesus has been proved right by history. People who, who take the name of Jesus now are counted in, in millions and billions the world over. I want to point out the encouragement of these parables here for church life at Kirkpatrick Memorial. We may be small, but we're not insignificant. If I preached this um, a few years ago at Kirkpatrick Memorial, I think we'd have had even a stronger sense of being a small community. But I think it's realistic to say that we're still a small community. In the grand scheme of things, if you think of, of some gatherings that take place here in Belfast and the, the quarter of a million or more people who live in our city alone, we're not, we're not a significant crowd in, on that stage. And yet, because we're a part of the kingdom of God, we can expect that this small community is going to grow We can expect that this small community, particularly if we allow ourselves to be in the mix of the community around us, we can expect that we will have an impact there. That slowly and quietly we can change this community in which we live. Folks, I think that's the promise of these parables. By his grace, God's going to ensure that small seeds become huge forests that small amounts of yeast can produce a huge banquet for the glory of God. We're going to jump now to the other two very short parables. And I'm going to have to break your train of thought a wee bit because as far as I can see, there's no very obvious connection. So I'm going to pause for a moment I'm going to ask you quite, quite a stark sort of a question. I'm going to ask you, is it worth it? Is following Jesus Christ, giving commitment to him and to his church, is it really worth all the hassle? You see, to be involved with Jesus can be costly. It can be costly in terms of our time. Other people are having a lie in this morning. Or they're out playing golf. Or they're at home with the paper and a cup of coffee. 
It can be costly in terms of, of money. Christian people understand that there's a commitment to, to give to God and to, you know, other people don't have that, uh, that cost. To be involved with Jesus has moral implications for our living. We get involved in a, in a lifestyle that has certain accepted limitations, maybe over how we express our sexuality. It's a, another cost of following Jesus Christ. There, there are ethical standards, the ways in which we conduct our business affairs. We, some options just aren't open to us if we want to be followers of Jesus Christ. Being involved with Jesus can be socially costly. If you want to move in all the right circles in Belfast, there'll be some places where you're going to be frowned upon a little bit, particularly if, if word gets out that you're taking this, this relationship with Jesus too seriously. People will say, you know, he, he's nuts. She's, she's a weirdo. There's a cost in all sorts of different ways and at all sorts of a different level. And so I'm going to ask you again, is it worth it? Is following Jesus Christ and belonging to his church really worth that kind of, of hassle and that kind of cost? It's not a new question. It's a question that's been around for as long as people have followed Jesus Christ. And actually, Jesus always encouraged people to ask that question. Jesus always encouraged people to make a realistic assessment of the cost of discipleship. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a couple of stories where he asks people to, to count the cost before they get involved with him. He talks of somebody who's about to start a building project, and he says, you'd be nuts to start a building project if you don't know that you have the resources to finish it. He says, you'd be nuts if you were the commander of an army if you went to battle not knowing that your army was strong enough to defeat your enemy. Before you get involved with these kind of things, you check that you are equipped, that you are willing to meet the cost, that you're able to see it through. Jesus always encouraged people to count the cost before they got involved with him. Everything that I've said this morning so far about counting the cost is good biblical stuff, but it's only half the story. And it's at this point that our thinking about the cost of Jesus Christ often comes off the rails. You see, most of the time when you hear preaching about counting the cost of following Jesus, we're left with the impression that it's a terrible cost. Paying it's going to be painful beyond what anything, anyone, sorry, could bear. So we frame counting the cost in language that makes us out to be martyrs. We make this huge sacrifice, we tell ourselves, in giving our lives over to following Jesus Christ. If we decide to follow Jesus, then we're doing God a real favor. That's the way it starts, uh, starts to feel sometimes and starts to sound. Uh, God's quite lucky, actually, to have us coming on board. And I was thinking about this. I wondered if we maybe have the reason here why many Christian people 
seem to think it's okay to walk around with a face like a lurgan spade. That long face is our badge, our way of showing people what a terrible life it is we've entered into with Jesus Christ and what swell guys we are because we're willing to pay the cost. Folks, I think that's where a lot of our thinking on the cost of following Jesus Christ has ended up. It's as though we're saying living for Jesus is terrible, but I'm willing to do it because I'm such a great guy. Look again at what Jesus says in the parables of the treasure and the pearl. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a perchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. Folks, these men made huge sacrifices. Do you see that? They sold, we're told both times, sold all that he had, sold everything. Both of them did. With this short parable of the kingdom, Jesus agrees with everything that we have said so far about the cost of the kingdom. The kingdom costs you everything. The cost is huge. But that's only one side of what's going on here. I want you to think for a moment of the subconscious decision every time you pull your wallet out. Every time you buy anything, whether it's a chocolate bar in the BP garage or a house for half a million pounds. What's the, what's, what's the subconscious process? You look at the item and you ask yourself one question, is it worth it? Is what I'm going to get worth what I'm going to pay to get it? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, life in the kingdom is going to cost you everything that you have. That's the cost. But then he says, when you see what's on offer, you'll gladly pay it. And you'll know that you're getting the bargain of a lifetime. You'll go and you'll pay that price with joy because you've seen what it is to enter into the kingdom of God. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've gone to view a house somewhere nearby here, somewhere further up the Upper Newtonards Road or Earlswood Road just across there. I want you to imagine that the survey is done and the survey throws up that there's an oil well in the back garden. But somehow or other, nobody else knows. So here you are with this opportunity to buy this house, and it, it costs, like houses do over there, it costs 600,000 pounds. Tell me this, how are you going to feel when you discover that for 600,000 pounds you get to buy not only a house, but an oil field? Does the 600 pounds seem like a big 600,000 pounds seem like a big cost anymore? No way. You go home immediately. 
You put your house on the market. You put your car in the auto trader. You put everything else you own on eBay. You try to get rid of it all to get your £600,000 in because you know that the gift of a lifetime sits in front of you. Friends, now you have a clearer picture, I think, of the cost of following Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not downplaying the cost of following Jesus. We've thought about that here this morning. We will think about it again. It's something that I'll never uh, skirt with you. But we've seen now how Jesus draws our attention to the true nature of the whole transaction of entry into the kingdom of God. Once we see it, we know that the kingdom of God and entry into it is the bargain of a lifetime. We stop at nothing to to find our way and to take our place in the kingdom. Can I ask you, and I'm thinking particularly just now of those who, who do take the name of Jesus Christ, uh, those who would say they're Christians. Do you feel like you've won the lottery on double a rollover week? Is that how you feel about your life with Christ? Is that, is that your understanding of the blessing and the opportunity and the goodness that you have in your life with Christ. I hope it is. I'm not being naive, sorry. I'm not saying that there are no more hard times. I'm not saying that life's suddenly perfect. I'm simply asking, what does it mean to you to have found your place in the kingdom of God? Jesus says, it's like finding a treasure in a field. It's like finding a pearl the likes of which you've never seen before. As we close here this morning and as as we close this whole series, I want to look very quickly with you at the last verses there. We'll just take a couple of minutes here. Beginning in verse 53, Matthew tells us that Jesus went home We can only guess that he took the same kind of teaching and healing home that he'd been doing elsewhere. And it must have been a wonderful time. Can you imagine local local boy comes home? You just imagine it'd just be a wonderful occasion for Jesus' family and for all those who knew him. You'd imagine that. But then we read on and, and soon the cynicism surfaces. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mum's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Then where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. What's the problem here? These guys think they know Jesus. And they have some sort of a knowledge of him. They know his his family. They they know uh, where he comes from. 
but they're familiar with them to the point where their familiarity only breeds contempt. They take offense, Adam Matthew tells us, they reject Jesus Christ. And I want to ask for, for all of us to think this through. Where do you stand in relation to Jesus Christ? Are you for him? Or does he offend you? Are you familiar with him in the way that so many Presbyterians are in a coming to church year after year, hearing it all in Sunday school and hearing sermon after sermon, that kind of a way? Are you familiar with Jesus in that kind of a way? Is there a danger that that very familiarity is leading, is leading to a contempt of Jesus? Have you given up listening? Is your heart hard towards Jesus? Or do you know him? And do you love him? Is he the treasure? Is he the pearl of great price? Is he the great, great love of your life? I think you must be one or the other, actually. I think he either offends us and hardens our hearts or else he begins slowly to bring us bring us to life to warm our cold hearts to broaden our horizons to rehabilitate us in all the ways in which we need to be made new Friends, are you for Jesus or does he offend you? Let's pray.